From the Spyscape Podcast Network, this is The Spying Game. Over this season of The Spying Game, Rory Bremner will be joined by a mix of experts in the field of deception and fellow enthusiasts from the world of entertainment as they attempt to sort the Moscow rules from the Hollywood fabrication. Hello and welcome to The Spying Game. I'm Rory Bremner, comedian, mimic, spy enthusiast and professional liar. Each week on the show, we're tackling topics including double agents, escape, and betrayal. This time on The Spying Game, it's... The Enemy Within. Momin Kowaja was arrested in the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot. Momin Kowaja sat to my left in the Korhan school we went to as a kid. I remember playing Hot Wheels cars with him. You're given this promise. You're told, you know, to be indoctrinated into anything. You're told this is it. This is black and white. These people are wrong. These people are evil because of how they behave. But the more you get into anything, the more you realize how false that is and that it is a tool for, you know, getting people on side. The FBI, you know, this summer after George Floyd's death, they've been keeping tabs on Black Lives Matter leadership. You know, there are a lot of cycles in all of these things. So when I was writing about Marie, I didn't have to stretch my imagination that far. I mean, I just don't think to myself, if this was another kind of conservative family and it was a girl who did that, she'd probably be killed for it. Today, I'm joined by two people for whom the spying game is very much a family affair. First, we have American spy author and television writer Lauren Wilkinson, whose debut novel, American Spy, was picked out for special attention by none other than President Obama, who described it as a whole lot more than just a spy thriller, wrapping together the ties of family, of love and of country. Lauren, welcome to The Spying Game. That is quite a recommendation. Yeah, it sure is. Did that one come out of the blue or did he get in touch? It and, did. Can I write something it on the dust jacket? did come out of, <laughs> I, wish, I wish we had that kind of relationship. No, I was so surprised by it. I actually found out that I was on his summer reading list when I was at work. It was my landlord at the time who actually told me. I, so I was really surprised. And then I had to spend the rest of that afternoon pretending like I was paying attention to what my coworkers were saying. But I definitely was not. <laughs> well, he, of course, he's, he's right. The family bit's important, isn't it? Because while the business end of the novel, if you like, where your lead character, a black female CIA agent, is mm -hmm. sent to infiltrate the close circle of a communist African leader, that mm -hmm. comes relatively late on, while the first half or more is spent detailing the complex family relationships that make her who she is. And as you said somewhere else, it, it, it's family that messes you up, right? That's yes, very important. Yes. Marie, the main character, she has a lot of baggage. So I spent a lot of time in the early part of the book trying to figure out who packed her bags. <laughs> um, you know, I, to me, it was really interesting to do that because some of the classic spy novels that I read, you know, as inspiration while I was writing my own book, I loved them, but I felt in a lot of cases that some of the female characters were a little bit lacking. Um, specifically Liz in The Spy Who Came In mm -hmm. from the Cold. You know, I, I didn't understand why she was doing what she was doing. She gave up an awful lot <laughs> to be with a guy who yeah. was, you know, maybe not the best. So, you know, I, I wanted... Marie to do things that readers would say, oh, well, why is she behaving this way? Mm -hmm. But they'd know, right? They'd have some background when her choices were, were bad ones. <laughs> At least they'd understand why she was doing it. Seven years in the writing. 
not fun. <laughs> I'm just gonna just be honest with you. It was, it was it was hard because you know you don't know how people are going to receive the book. You have no idea how it's going to do. So it does feel kind of risky to make such a commitment because that that was really all I was focusing on too, work wise. Well, it's paid yeah, off certainly. Hard. And alongside Lauren, we have former religious extremist, a jihadi indeed, jihadi recruit who changed sides and became a spy for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Am I allowed to say that? You, you are a spy, aren't you, Mubin? Uh, for the Canadian Security Intelligence Services? Was, was. Was. was <laughs> Did they give you a yes. pension? <laughs> no. So Mubin, I, I mentioned family in the context of, of Lauren's book, but it, it's the tension between between your family, both your, your birth family and in a way your religious family, and your own conscience that defines you. Let's get straight into your story. Um, when you were 17, there you are, growing up in Toronto, raised in a strict... Muslim family, but attending a liberal Western school. So there straight away, we've got a kind of dual upbringing. But just two years later, at the age of 19, you go to India and Pakistan to immerse yourself in Islam, encounter the Taliban and become a fully radicalized supporter of global jihad. What was the sliding doors moment that set you on that path? Yeah, there's a never one thing that really pushes a person into that journey. But for me, it was a buildup of that identity crisis that I was going through uh, as I, you know, my formative years, uh, as I was going through public school, then got to high school. Um, and what starts to happen is I'm moving away from that religious community and family, and I'm exposed to these non-Muslim friends who are living a fun life. And I'm, I'm a young kid mm -hmm. and I want to live that life too. And so, and so I did, uh, but there was a, an important moment, I guess, where I actually, I had a house party. And thank God it was in the days before cell phones, <laughs> uh, but called up my friends on the uh, on the landline phone, told them to come over and uh, we had this great party. Unfortunately for me, my father had told his brother to check on the house while he uh -uh. was gone. So basically my uncle, uh, he's the mean Muslim guy, <laughs> right? He's got the scowling face, big beard, big belly. Central casting. Yeah. Uh, and just burst through the door like a SWAT team, basically. And so I was basically humiliated, embarrassed. I got caught, right, in the party. And uh, it was just like my, my parents catching me. Like the older uncle catching you is kind of even worse. So I got slapped around a bit. And, um, and I basically realized that I had screwed up really badly. And so I kind of told myself that the only way for me to salvage my reputation was to become very religious. I, of course, make light of it now too, but I mean, I just don't think to myself, if this was another kind of conservative family and it was a girl who did that, she'd probably be killed for it in some yes. places. Yes, That's the yeah. horrible reality. So you felt the need to apologize in some way? I felt the need to make amends. Uh, and again, uh, you know, community reputation is everything, right? Uh, honor of the family and all that stuff. So I would end up going to India and Pakistan in the, the summer of 95. And it was in the latter part of the four month trip that I went on that I was sent to Kuwaita in Pakistan. And that's where I would meet the Taliban. And of course, it was the same Taliban that was there in 1995 in Kuwaita that's there right now. What were the circumstances? I was just kind of walking around in the local area with a local fixer. Uh, and the, the group that I was with, it's almost like a missionary group. It's basically Latter-day Saints. I mean, I don't know in the UK if they do that, but, you know, they come yeah. knocking on your door. So the group that I was with basically do the same thing, but only for Muslims. All right. Okay. So I was just going around in the local area. I looked, I could see this compound that had mud walls around it, foliage growing out of it, providing shade now on the outside of the walls. 
And as I came close, I could see a number of men sitting there and I thought they were people from the group. But as I came close, I realized that, wait a second, these guys have weapons displayed in front of them, belts of ammunition, rocket propelled grenades, AK-47s. And so when I came up to them to basically preach to them that, hey, you know, success in our in this life and the life hereafter is in following the commandments of God and following the way of the prophet, peace be upon him. So they heard me out and then he said, well, if you really want to see success in this life and the next, you do it with this. And he picked up the AK-47. So you were kind of preaching to the converted, but the super converted. That's right. So I'm like, you know, young male Muslim looking for a new identity, religious identity, an identity of strength, power, coming from a feeling of powerlessness and, and feeling that we don't have strength as a community. So these guys provided that in this image, very romanticized image, of course, but but I was I was hooked. It answered something that was missing. Yeah, absolutely. Identity conflicts, I think, are the main ingredient when we deal with radicalization in the West. And it's not just Muslims, it's, it's anybody who's going through, uh, who, who has to feel that they need to fight between different identities. You were drawn into the, the ideology and, and the jihadi cult, if, if you like. Lauren, the heroine of, of your novel, American Spy, Marie Mitchell, she's stalled in a career working for the FBI, sent to Africa to Burkina Faso to infiltrate the circle of uh, Thomas Sankara, who's a communist leader, a real-life communist leader, but finds herself drawn into that world and, and that ideology. Are you interested in that whole area of divided loyalties? Absolutely. You know, I, I felt like that would be um, how to create the most dramatic tension because Marie is a boomer. You know, she was a child during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, you know, for Americans, I think a lot of Americans who are around that age, uh, that was a childhood trauma. And with that trauma comes in some cases, a really irrational fear of communism. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think she was really, really compelled by somebody who she'd kind of been conditioned as a child to to be afraid of and everything that they stood for. And so, yeah, I felt that that would be, you know, as stark a conflict as you could, as you could make, that attraction and repulsion that are both ingrained. There's kind of almost an analogy, isn't there, between the, that, the Cold War and the War on Terror in the sense that, you know, you just spoke about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a kind of existential moment. And then more recently with the War on Terror and the Cuban Missile Moment would be 9-11, which was this shattering moment, again, existential, which caused people to, to question their beliefs. And so in a way, you know, these these you find that there, there are parallels. But for you... Um, it was it was the story of Thomas Sankara, this communist, charismatic African leader. Tell us a little bit about him and what drew you into him. He was talked about as a kind of Che Guevara figure in Burkina Faso, isn't he? Yeah, so he kind of ushered in the golden age of the country in the 80s. So I first read about him in college and just he had a lot of compelling qualities, played in a band, you know, <laughs> had a had a motorcycle. And he was opposed to FGM, wasn't he as well? Yes. As, and, and yeah. Pro-female education. Exactly. Had like the day of the woman where, you know, the 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 shtick was to swap people so you know men went to the market and did all of the household chores and just so they could see have the experience of something that they were taking for granted when was this from around 84 to 87 
So he's about 40 years ahead of his time. Definitely. Um, really pushed for planting trees for an anti-desertification uh, program. Got a lot of kids vaccinated, upped the literacy rate in the country substantially, you know, all in a very, very short period of time. But got a lot of pushback. <laughs> yes. Um, so <laughs> Not least from America. <laughs> Were you kind of inspired in a way? But did you love that Sankara story? Yeah, I was inspired. There was a couple of inspirations. First, you know, Africa and West Africa is not generally thought of as a Cold War theater, but there were proxy wars. The Angolan Civil War certainly was one. Um, And I wanted to just kind of hang a lantern on that fact. Um, I also felt that, you know, hey, I'm doing something that hasn't done been done a whole lot before my main character is a black female spy essentially or black cia officer you know why not just go as far as i can with (laughs) with the new stuff you know because i who knows if i'll ever get another shot at uh writing a book (laughs) they might get the giant hook and pull me off the stage you know and that's the end of my career so might as well just make it (laughs) it's important because she's she's conflicted from the get-go as well you Mm -hmm. talk about you know, being a spy in this country as long as I can remember. And in a way, she's kind of deep within the intelligence services of a system that doesn't necessarily serve her yeah. racial identity. And her gender identity as well. Yes. You know, it does certainly CIA, FBI, you know, was a boys club. Um, so, yeah. yeah, and I think that that's at the heart of what I was trying to get at. How can you be loyal? How do you find that strength to be loyal to an institution or institutions that don't serve you? I feel that that is kind of some of just being a black American in general. Yeah. So Sankara, we spoke about, and but just you're currently working on the story of another charismatic leader who was assassinated one who we're more familiar with in the west than jfk i am yeah i am i am writing a script i've sold out i'm hollywood now baby um (laughs) so uh yeah and it is uh an adaptation of libra by don delillo and the protagonist of that is uh lee harvey oswald and so yes spoiler alert (laughs) he assassinates um you know uh jfk at uh at the end of the limited series well that is that is the you know part of it too is this a conspiracy i think the question more though that delillo is interested in and so the one that i'm interested in is what is a conspiracy you know he has this line in the book that when you're looking at a conspiracy from the outside it's the perfect working of a machine but you know he doesn't and i don't think either and delillo doesn't seem to think that that's what happened uh, with with uh, the Kennedy assassination? You know, people just have these in- you know intentions and goals, and luck and coincidence are certainly parts um, of anything that you can consider a conspiracy. And then retroactively, you kind of go back and and map a pattern onto it because mm-hmm. that's what humans do. We you know we tell stories, we define yeah. ourselves with the stories we tell. Mubin, we left you in Pakistan a recruit to jihad what happens then i mean are you straight away do you make contact with a cell or cells in in canada so i had become enamored by the ideology and the ideology is let's put it as an umbrella because underneath that umbrella you have it manifested in these different groups so whether it's taliban or al-qaeda or isis or al-shabaab or whatever like disparate groups or different names, but same ideology. 
So when I returned back to Canada, what I looked for actually left the group that I was with because they weren't as political or they weren't as excitable for me. Actually, when I came back, I actually sought out a group that previously tried to recruit me. Uh, but at that time, I had not gone through my you know, chaos moment, if you will, that house party. Ready. So when I walked into their, uh, to their mosque, if you will, they were kind of surprised to see me. And after I told them the story <laughs> of, of where I had gone and where I had been and who I met, they were real keen on, of course, bringing me on. So I, I kind of joined up with this new group and uh, they were, they were definitely uh, extremists, you know, very anti-Western. They, you know, they, they didn't mind if like attacks happened in the country or wherever. Were they planning stuff, plotting stuff? They weren't plotting or planning anything. Not that I knew of at that time. Yeah, it was very almost aspirational, if you will, you know, just kind of in their mind, but nothing, nothing really uh, operational in that sense. Now, this is mid 90s. So there were some political things that started, political conflicts. Uh, the main one was the the invasion of Chechnya yes. by Russia. So I had I wanted to go to fight as a foreign fighter in, in Russia. Uh, then the other thing that was there was uh, the second Intifada kicked off in Israel slash Palestine, whatever you want to use. And so that was another you know world event that we could kind of uh, draw our grievances from yes. because it really does yeah. come down to ideology and grievances. Right. So there's a great mm -hmm. quote, uh, ideology without grievances doesn't resonate and grievances without ideology are not acted upon. And so yes. that was the formula in which I was existing. But then a big event happened. You said that was sort of mid 90s, yeah. but 2001, the Twin Towers. Yeah. What was your reaction? So September 10, I was still very much an extremist and a supporter of the cause. And then uh, Tuesday morning, I was working for uh, a student loans processing center. And um, I remember hearing on the radio that the plane hit the building. I went to my workplace. I was telling somebody outside, hey, a plane has hit the building. The guy comes out of the office. He's like, hey, a plane just hit the building. I said, no, I just said that. And he said, no, a second plane. And I thought to myself, oh, crap, please don't let it be a Muslim. That was the first time I said that, and I, I tried to keep saying that because in the subsequent years, all the conflicts that, that start to happen, I, I realized that day that obviously something really, really big had gone on. So I, I kind of, uh, during lunch period, I drove back home and um, my wife was, you know, looking at the TV and my people were calling my house, like my apartment. And my wife even kind of made a joke, like, you sure you didn't have anything to do with this? Like, you know, I have the bad Muslims basically calling me saying, all right, right on, see what happened. The good Muslims calling me saying, Mubin, you know, is this what you've become? Is this, this is not our religion. So already you can see these conflicts, right? These divided loyalties, so to speak. That day, I, in the evening anyway, I went to see the bad friends, quote unquote. And uh, we, of course they were jubilant. They were very happy what had happened. And I remember a friend of mine, you know, he asked, he said, hey, like, I understand fighting the Kufar, but I must have missed the chapter on flying planes into buildings. Uh, and so, you know, there was a pause. And then the mouthpiece of the group basically just said, oh, well, they're all infidels anyway. They're all Kufar anyway, so it doesn't matter. And that's when the real wedge came into my mind where I thought to myself, hmm, that, that just doesn't make sense, right? Like, I understand the, the good fight, the just war, legitimate tactics and legitimate targets, but this just didn't meet any of that. So I actually realized then that I really didn't know my religion that well. You know, I'm Indian background. I, 
we learn how to recite the Quran. So even wherever you are, UK that has many of these madrasas where kids mo most overwhelmingly Indo-Pakistani are forced to learn how to recite the Quran, but like to how to verbalize the words, but they don't understand what they're actually reading. So, so I grew up in that environment. I didn't know my religion as, as I wanted to learn it. So you do what you historically tend to do in moments of crisis, say, right, I need to understand this religion yeah. and, and go abroad again, this, t this time to Syria. We're, we're going to pick up on that. Yeah. In just a second, but I'm going to come back to you, Laura. If there's one thing, it's that, it's that phrase that you take from the Invisible Man. Uh, I mentioned it before. I've, I've been a spy in this country for as long as I remember, and it's that thing. This is both of you, but but Lauren particularly, this thing of, of finding yourself not just alien to, but even working against a culture that you've grown up in, mm -hmm. and moving obviously as a Canadian working against the West as a jihadi recruit, and then as a Canadian agent working against your jihadi accomplices. Lauren, for your character as a black FBI agent, as you say, upholding the laws of a country that aren't always designed to keep you safe. So I'm writing about from the 60s to the 90s around there, but it felt pretty relevant for today. Cointelpro was the FBI targeting civil rights leaders. Um, the FBI, you know, this summer after George Floyd's death, they've been uh, keeping tabs on Black Lives Matter. Uh, leadership, you know, there are a lot of cycles in all of these things. So, so when I was writing about Marie, uh, I didn't have to stretch my imagination that far. Her emotions and this tension feels very present to me um, in 2021. What fascinated me, actually, I think you talked about when you're in America, you're aware of being black first and then American. And when you were in Burkina Faso, the thing that made you stand out was that you were an American. When I went to um, Burkina Faso, people um, knew immediately just by looking at me that I was American or they sometimes they thought maybe I was I was French or I had a I had a, a white father. That was kind of what people would always ask me. And so it was a real shift being aware of how other people perceive me and the way that I perceive myself. Um, there was a shift in that. And, you know, I think the story, the spy story is sort of an allegory for uh, W.E.B. Du Bois idea of double consciousness, which is so much like predicated on how um, black people in America understand that they're being perceived and the psychological effect of that, you know, and just and versus how they perceive themselves, how we perceive ourselves. So for me, those two moments being in those two cultures, there was a really stark shift you know I just had, went from this one way of seeing myself and knowing how I was perceived into another that I'd never really experienced before um and and feeling like well so then who am I now <laughs> if these yeah. tenets of how I perceive myself are suddenly shifted I guess the, the read across for you moving and talking about double consciousness is you know there you were in a regular school and a Quran school concurrently you know what, what was your identity were you Canadian were you Muslim were those two in conflict did you have to choose between them first of all I want to say that I did read the book Lauren yeah it was great Thank and you. I actually had uh I got my notes here of course spoiler <laughs> alert yeah. Uh -oh. spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah and actually I wrote this uh, Cold War backdrop and then COINTELPRO and I also have uh, here how African-Americans view Africa and how Africa views black Americans. Then my other note here was minorities in law enforcement and the spy game. 
Sometimes you're seen as sellouts. Maybe you're seen as heroes. Uh, even if you look at this whole idea of the resistance to James Bond, even potentially being black, like Idris Elba, yeah. uh, for example, or even brown, right? Like uh, yeah. maybe an Asian guy or something. So, so a lot of this stuff resonates. Even what you're saying right now, Rory, about these dual identities and conflicting identities. And in the formative years, I didn't know what my identity was. I mean, I was Muslim. That was the first identity. And I was a Muslim in Canada. That was the second identity. And there was this, I kind of felt, and, and I think it doesn't have to be like that, but I think because of really these closed cultural communities, they have this idea of you have to double down on your cultural practices. And that's the only way you can protect that culture in an environment where that culture is being assailed from you know every side. And so, so I, I did feel wrongly, I would say, that I needed to decide either you're Muslim or you're Western Canadian. And, you know, ne'er the two shall meet. We've taken you out your first trip, which radicalizes you. You come back to Canada, 9-11, questions everything. And we left you heading for Syria. Tell us what happens there. March of 2002, a few months after 9-11 happened, I realized that I needed to study my religion properly. I kind of decided, you know, okay, where am I going to go and do this? And so it, it was just weird the way it worked out. Like I could have gone to Saudi Arabia, but I was too old. I was like almost 25, which, and they don't like that because they want them young so they can shape, <laughs> shape their minds and brainwash okay. them. Egypt was too expensive at the time, and so I decided to go to Syria. <laughs> now, Syria in 2002, the civil war hadn't started, so it was very much a, still a functional country. So I, I would end up spending two years there. I started to learn Arabic, classical Arabic, and then enrolled into an Islamic university and started to learn uh, the religion properly. And it was weird because I was also doing a degree by distance education from a Canadian university in religious studies. Um, it was overwhelmingly just biblical studies, which was fine for me. I wanted to kind of become a scholar. I would only end up spending two years there. So there, so there's a the university there, Damascus University. There's a faculty of literature. Uh, and languages where all the foreign students go to pick up their language first and also to get your residency permit stamp, basically. So while I was there, I met a bunch of people, but two of them ended up going to blow themselves up in Israel, in Tel Aviv, in a place called Mike's Place. So the Mike's Place wow. cafe bombing, I met one of the attackers at Damascus University. So after that happened, uh, there was a lot of pressure on the Western students who were there. And I was there, you know, idealistic Canadian kid. You know, I, by this time now, I have a full beard, I'm wearing, a, you know, a black turban, long robes. And I I looked like Taliban, right? And it's it's funny because I was called Taliban more in Syria than I was in Canada. Oh. Because the way it works in that, you know, part of the world or... If, you know, I'm clear, I look, I don't look Arab, right? I look Indian, Indo-Pak. So if you're Indo-Pak, you're Taliban. If you're Arab looking, you're Al-Qaeda, right? So, but so I, in I, both cases, you're being identified as a radical terrorist. Yeah. But yeah. you are, you're in there, you're there to deeply study Islam. And am I right in saying that, that your tutor, that while, while the, the radicalization is going on sort of elsewhere, your tutor has a very different interpretation yeah. of Islam and that sort of 
I was going to say save. It de-radicalized me. Yes. It did. It did. Save me is a good word to use. Yeah. I, I went through a de-radicalization process. I didn't know it at the time. It's only later on when I came to study the topic that I realized, oh, hey, I went through that process. So it was a de-radicalization process, and it was because of the the proper study of Islam, the correct study of Islam. What did he say that was different? What did he teach you? Well, his epistemology, his methodology, you know, drawing from the authentic Islamic sources, like, you know, going to the Quran first. And there's like a whole, you know, methodology of interpretation of Quran. You don't just read one verse and then, you know, declare a fatwa. Right. It's like, well, you read yeah. one verse and you look at other verses because the way that a lot of this is the way extremists are is they just really black and white. They read a verse. They have this idea of what they think it means. And then that's it. That's not Islam. Like you have to look at the Quran and then you go to the Sunnah of the Prophet salam, and you see, well, how what he said and what he did. And then you go through history and to see how the Muslim world implemented these things. So it was a broad, very informed approach as opposed to the narrow emotional approach of the extremists. I got fed up of Syria. I wanted to go home. I had a newfound appreciation for the rights that we have in Canada. The yes. horror stories that I heard over there about people getting picked up because of their political views and religious views. So when I came back, the first week that I'm back, it hasn't even been seven days. And I look in the newspaper and front page, is a guy who has been arrested, the first Canadian arrested in the newly minted 9-11 laws, counterterrorism laws or anti-terrorism laws. Momin Kuwaja was arrested in the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot. Momin Kuwaja okay. sat to my left in the Quran school we went to as a kid. I remember playing <sighs> Hot Wheels cars with him. You know, like we were, we were friends and his older brother and... So, uh, so that when I looked in the newspaper, there was a reference to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and I just I went to you remember those things called phone books? Yeah, <laughs> so I went to the phone book. Yellow pages. Yeah, saw a reference to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and basically just called them. And I said, "Hey, I'm looking at this guy in the newspaper, Momin Kuaja. I know him. I know his family. This must be a mistake." And so they just said to me, "Well, it's no mistake. It's out of our hands." Because I didn't know the way that it's just like legal mandates. Because like in the UK, you have uh, MI5, which does domestic security intelligence. And then Scotland Yard, which does federal policing. We have CSIS that does the first. And then the RCMP, who does the latter. So it was already in court, meaning the police investigation, collecting evidence, and then presenting it in court. Uh, so it was out of their hands. But they, they said to me that, you know, the fact that you're calling us about him, you know, yeah. interests mm -hmm. us. And we would like to come and talk with you. An agent shows up on your door. Yeah, some says, supervisory officer came and we talked. I told him my life story. I uh, told him everything that I was doing. And I should note, when I went to Syria, everybody, all the bad guys who were here, uh, thought that I was going to escalate. Didn't know that I had this change of heart. So they, they really didn't know what was going on. And one of the first things I did when I got to Syria was register with the Canadian embassy. So fast forward when I'm now talking to the intelligence service and I'm telling them I was in Syria, blah, blah, blah. One of the first things they did was check the embassy to see if I had come and registered. So that was one of the main reasons why they were able to actually work with me. Is this a real moment of peril for you? Because presumably you're still your friends and circle uh, know you as a, one of them, a radical. 
and you're transitioning, if I can use that word, over to the intelligence services. Yeah, the, the main thing was, of course, having access to the target groups. I knew everybody and everybody knew me. You know, the spy agency realized that if, you know, if we were to work with this guy and, you know, insert him into particular groups, whatever, they're going to try to find out, like, who is this guy? Or what we, we used to call a street cred check. And that was like, do you know this guy? How long have you known this guy? What kind of things has he been doing while you knew him? Like, could he be a spy? I went through that. And uh, when I was eventually inserted into a number of different networks and groups and whatever, online and on the ground, uh, all this came up all the time. And, uh, you know, my, my checks came out clear. Were you frightened for your life? I don't know if I was fearful per se. I'm not, I'm not going to say, you know, oh, I have no fear or whatever. Like, I did feel fear at certain times. Well, how would you report back? Would you be sort of looking over your shoulder? Would you be worrying that somebody was going to just, you were going to slip up, that somebody would see you? Yeah, there's, there's all different uh, contexts that you have to manage. So, of course, the physical part, meaning like you could be followed to, you know, this your debrief location. Or if it's at a safe house and you're going to a safe house to debrief and write up your reports. But... I laughed because I was thinking I drive like a maniac. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah, so if you're, if you're trying to follow me, <laughs> I'm going to know. Did they train you in a sense? And OK, this is how you can report to us and we'll help you not be discovered. So they, they, there is no training per se, uh, because you cannot train somebody to to act natural in those kinds of environments. You either have it or you don't. You know, I grew up in rough areas, like I've been around rough people all my life. So it doesn't bother me if somebody's standing there and he's holding, you know, guns and he's acting tough and he's saying whatever. Like for me, it's just like I've seen this all my life. So it's no big deal. right? <laughs> and it, which the agency, well, the service loved that because I could get in and talk to anybody. And, and they were just like amazed that I could do that. But it was only because I had. I was in that world, right? I lived it. But there were, there were, there was always concerns about my family, and like if they did find out, if the bad guys did find out, they would kill me. I, I knew that for sure. But you were the perfect man, actually, as it happened at the perfect time, because there was a proper plot going on. Yeah. So I had been working for a couple of years undercover by this time, because so the way that the service works, you'll have different levels of. Uh, sources, right? The the human sources that give the information to the officers who then write up that information, pass it up the chain, which then gets analyzed by analysts. And then, you know, so I'm just this guy all the way down there. If they, they knew information about a certain plot and certain people, they would not tell me. All they would say to me is, here are a bunch of guys, tell us what they're up to. And so for me, it was just like any other day, any other mission. I was told, okay, these guys are going to be here at this place at this time on this date, go and make friends with them. So I went and I did, I made friends with them and it was weird the way it worked again. It's not just all me, but I say that like the hand of God was behind all of this. Cause when I went into the building, like there was a conference going on and I sat at a table and I did my checking my emergency escape routes and all that stuff. And uh, just waiting for these guys. And one guy comes in, he's got a scarf over his face and comes and sits right next to me. And just before he sits, he removes his scarf. And, oh, what do you know? It's target number two. <sighs> and so I felt like I felt the butterflies in my stomach at that moment. And uh, But I just played it cool. 
And then he was like, oh, I'm just waiting for my friends, this and that. So I was just, just chatting with him. And then so you're uh, right next to the guy that you're about to. Yeah, choose. that I was supposed to go and find out. And meanwhile, he comes to me. And then so the rest of the guys came in to the to the room and then saw him. And so started coming towards him. So I realized they see me obviously with him. So I'm hoping that they think that this guy has recruited me. So we move over to a, a table just to the side, which had a lot more chairs. And so I kind of, you know, assumed that I was going to go with them. And I even t stopped and looked at one guy and I was like, hey, brother, I think I know you from, you know, such and such mosque. And I was just dropping that as a bullshit line, right? But turned out I did know him from that mosque and he had seen me. And so that just solidified that, okay, we know who this guy is. And so I... So I befriended the group um, and, you know, there was some conversations that happened after the, the conference and it was a little bit more, uh, you know, they were, they were trying to recruit me, quote unquote. And again, they were using the grievances from the Iraq war in particular. That was their, yep. their grievance, yep. uh, 2003. And, and it's really after 2003 that you start to see the first wave, if you will, of domestic jihadist terrorism. So in the UK, the, the London bombings, the 2004 mm -hmm. fertilizer plot, Toronto case, Australia, wherever. Again, ideology and grievances, right? The war provided the grievance, the ideology yeah. just. So I got recruited by the group. I told them I had a little bit of military training. I was a cadet. I didn't have real military training, but but they, they took that anyway. And they said, hey, why don't you come and help train our guys? And we want to basically be able to commit these attacks on these different targets in Canada. At the beginning, they had, we'll call them aspirational targets. Yep. So one was, you know, to hit the nuclear power station that's uh, not too far from my city. But it was later on, several months later, when they started to hone in on what they wanted to do exactly. So, so one really aspirational plot was to storm the parliament building, uh, effectively hold the members of parliament hostage and start beheading them one by one to force the removal of Canadian forces from Afghanistan because that was the other grievance. The Canadian forces had deployed to Afghanistan. We did not deploy to Iraq, thank God, um, but we did deploy to Afghanistan and that was another grievance of theirs. This wasn't just talk. They were capable of at least preparing this. Yeah, they, they were definitely because I helped them prepare for it. That's that's the problem. Um, and, and this is, I mean, back to, you know, conflicting loyalties and, you know, what am I doing here? Like, I'm a Muslim guy, you know, I'm, I'm in a mosque, I'm in prayer with these guys who think I'm their brother. I remember this very vividly, standing in the mosque and just, I'm in prayer and I'm thinking to God, I'm talking to God in my head and I'm saying, God, what am I doing here? You know, these guys think that I'm their brother. Like, I'm, am I betraying them? Can I be doing this in a mosque? Like, I'm wearing a recording device, a body pack oh. in the mosque while I'm praying. But I was just, I kept getting this feeling of like, look, what these guys want to do is so bad. It will destroy your community if, if you let this happen, if you don't put a stop to it. I mean, I, I definitely see it's still a, if I can go back to the identities and you just racial identities even like this is very much a white man's system and it, and and we we see this often where majority cultures turn that apparatus onto minority cultures we've we've seen it i'm extensively involved even in the us right now and uh, not just cointel pro but what's happening with 
just the way that the FBI unfortunately does some things in some places. Mm-hmm. But it was the same thing for me in Canada too. But you've also got chapter four, verse 35. Of- oh, 135. Stand firm for justice, even if it may be against your parents, even the rich or the poor, even against yourselves. And when you are called to give your testimony, give it. Don't swerve from it. And if you swerve from it, know that God sees what you do. It's in like Harvard Law School. It's in the it's in the hallway as an example from the Quran, right? But it became my life. Like I actually went all the way through to like giving my testimony because after all these guys got arrested, uh, there were, you know, it was basically six months operational following going around safe houses, all the cool spy stuff. And then it was four years of court. Mm. And so, uh, so yeah, and I gave my testimony and uh, I paid a price for it. I mean, of course, like yeah. I was saying about how, you know, even black police officers are seen as sellouts. Or mm. if you're a CIA officer, black female, that's even worse. Right. Yeah. So I went through all those things. Right. But you have to have loyalty to your values, to your personal values. It's it's ultimately yeah. in this in this competition between values and identities you find the one that is that resonates with you the most obviously the one that is most i think solidified something that you you don't swerve from right like you can you know like i like how marie says uh you know she doesn't talk about politics because she obviously she doesn't want to deal with white male conservative politics so she she just says yeah i'm not really that interested in politics anyway like those kind of coping yeah. mechanisms i when i was reading that i was like i do that i do that now for the same reasons right? i just i just don't want to deal with you know that that crap there you go lauren don't you wish you'd written the character of mubin <laughs> of course i suppose there's that thing about how marie feels when she is very close to thomas sankara when she's within that circle and falling for him i guess but at the same time she's working for somebody else that's that's a world of um deception isn't it that's something that you've really got to where your loyalties are really being tested I you know I was really interested in this idea of being a black cop and being considered you know a sellout because a thing that's true in in the novel is that my grandfather became the deputy police commissioner of of New York Uh, he actually passed away last month but he he retired in 1984 you know so he had this run from he was a cop from 1956 to 1984 and ultimately became one of the most powerful you know commissioner in the city he also fought in the korean conflict and he was you know in mississippi on the way back to a base had to sit at the back of the bus if that's the way that you're treated by the country then why do you continue to reinforce its code i guess um that was you know a question that is a lifelong question for my grandfather or for me you kind of divide informants into they're either snitches or traitors. Talk to me a little bit about that and where that came from. I think the idea of snitching is <laughs> is a, is a particular is a, is a I think it's a deeper idea than it's given credit for in in mainstream media. It's 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 more complicated than just is this person breaking the law or should they be ratted out because law is not equitably applied, <laughs> right? Yes. So if there are laws like for example, marijuana laws that have disproportionately affected 
people, you know, then it becomes, is this a law that is about keeping order or is this a law about social control? Is this a law that is designed to oppress certain groups of people, right? Mm-hmm. Like the questions start getting into there, particularly now that marijuana is, is legal to smoke in, in New York. So if you're able to betray someone based on that order, that is already flawed, you know, that that's that's a big ask. It takes a lot. It's more complicated than just, you know, OK, well, they've done wrong. So they they go to jail. I mean, in 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 some cases. So I think that, that I was more interested in that idea. Well, that was also I mean, that we talked about COINTELPRO as well beforehand when you said about is it upholding the law or is it about oppressing people? And I mean, that was very evident. Yeah, it was pretty actively that they were targeting civil rights leaders. Like Fred Hampton, for example. Who was, I mean, assassinated. There really isn't another way to think about it or talk about it because, you know, he was asleep. Absolutely. You give that, you, you give that line to Marie that's so strong is her belief in upholding the law that she doesn't think that she's betraying her organisation by seeing that as a murder, as a cold-blooded murder. And, and you know, she is comfortable with that as a, as a, as a human being, that, that, is, that was the, she knows that was the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Tell me about the agents that you spoke to in your research. I spoke to some after the fact. I spoke to a woman, a black woman who was in the FBI at around the same time, and she... You know, she was like, oh, this was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Was it intuition on your part? I read a ton and also, you know, have been a member of predominantly white institutions. (laughs) Like I could just sort of make a lot of um, guesses, but about how things would be. You've got very very vivid locations as well. uh, You've really bring those to life very importantly. I went to Burkina. Um, That was important to me to be in the country that where um, Sankara was, you know, was a leader because... You know, it felt insincere to not to do that. I was able at the time to also interview someone who knew him, you know, and who went into exile um, at the end of Sankara's leadership. Mm-hmm. And he showed me, you know, his poetry from the time. It was interesting because I had this book about the history. And in this book, this man... Um, his nickname is the lion. He's like sitting and he's in his 30s and he's got an AK-47 on his knee in the photograph. And then when I met him in real life, you know, it's 30 years later and he had the time to look back on how things went. And mostly there was a lot of grief there, you know, the loss of of a friend and of a time period where he felt that people were doing better than they ever had before. It was just nice to have that um, opportunity to have that primary um, accounting of of historical uh, experience. You know, are there characters there in that world that you want to revisit, like in a, in a sequel? <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes of writing. Um, the novel from Ross's perspective. They're kind of in an antagonistic relationship in the novel, but I think that he has the ability to really see Marie, really, really see the whole picture of who she is. And I think that happens because in other iterations of this novel, they were allies. And then, you know, I kind of realized, oh, they needed to be at odds, but they're pretty close. They're pretty similar personality types, I think. What is it about this particular world of deception that makes it so rich? For a novelist, I mean, this the story of Mubin's life itself is 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 riveting. It is super riveting. It's it was really a pleasure to to listen to you talking about uh, your experiences and and how you were feeling in in these moments. And that's what's compelling about it. It's just so you know human. <laughs> That'll be your next book. <laughs> you said, Lauren, that if the first two lines of a book don't grab you, then you know you give yeah. up. Was that very? 
very much in your mind when you started? Absolutely. I mean, you know, attention is at such a premium these days, you know, and it really demands a lot of a person to have them sit down and read 300 pages when they could watch a 90 minute movie. I certainly don't read past the first page if I'm not interested. And I (laughs) sort of wrote my first page knowing that I'm like that and knowing that it's a real gift for people to spend as much time as they they have to to read my book when they could be, you know, on TikTok <laughs> being entertained yeah. <laughs> in in 60 seconds. Moving, I mean, did you firstly, I mean, did you find the same pressure when you were writing your own book? My, my book, I really didn't put too much thought and purpose into it. I think it was for me just to close that part of my life. I needed it as a closure tool. Um, in terms of do I read spy fiction? I do not. I, in fact, you don't really read a lot of fiction. I appreciate fiction. I totally understand what it's doing and I love all of that. And there are a few books that I'll read mostly because they're recommended or I'm going to be on a podcast with the author. <laughs> um, yeah, it's good to, uh, it's the intelligence, you know, you you have to know, right? It's the need to know. And uh, I wanted to just give this one liner if I could on. So first of all, on Lauren's book again, because I, I really did, I really did enjoy it. But for me, it was less the Sankara story and more who killed Helen. Mm. Larger point on this whole thing of uh, intelligence services and and what they do in different places. And then remember, there's a, in, it's in the backdrop of this larger great game where other nation states are doing the exact same thing that your country is doing, right? If not worse. So there's this line from one of the Jason Bourne series. Mm-hmm. So I do watch those kinds of shows. I, they, it's fiction TV, <laughs> yeah, <me> right? <laughs> as long as you can show, like, I will be turned off from a, a one of those, you know, action shows if, for example, he doesn't reload his his firearm, <laughs> or if he has a jam in the weapon. Like, I want to see realistic stuff. But anyways, in that one Jason Bourne iteration, Edward Norton Jr. He says we are morally reprehensible and absolutely necessary uh-huh. and i think i think that really exemplifies you know that it's all gray there is no black and white at all it's mm-hmm. just one big blob of that gray. absolutely yeah. resonates with yeah. you doesn't it lauren yes i i very strongly agree with that it is all there is no black and white you know to be indoctrinated into anything you're told this is it this is black and white these people are wrong these people are evil because you know capital e because of how they're how they behave but um the more you get into anything, the more you realize how false that is and that it is a tool for getting people on side, but not how reality yeah. <laughs> how reality works. Well, here you go. Here's a really easy last question for you. <laughs> In this world you write about and moving you talk about of grey and of moral ambiguity. If I come to you first, Lauren, whose voice do you trust? Who do you listen to? Who, your character? With everything around you is grey. Now, you and I, we can get through life like that. You know, I do my comedy, my performances, you write your novels. We don't have to absolutely lay our lives on the line and make mm-hmm. a choice. But if you do, where does the voice come from that you listen to or that your character listens to? Well, I think when you're in those in, around all of the gray, it's like Mubin said, you, you listen, you have to listen to the voice inside. You have to listen to your own moral compass or, you know, if you don't have a really strong one when you're in that kind of situation, then how do you get through it? I, I don't know. You have to really be able to listen to yourself. Yeah, Mubin, people talk about it all the time, about the need to do what's right. 
you've had to do this in real life. And what was that voice that that made you decide this is the thing to do? Where did it come from? Doing the right thing, man. It will come with a price, right? It will come with a price. You will lose friends, maybe even family, you know, a lot of sleep. Who's the black sheep? Who's the black sheep? No, anyway. <laughs> really? And how did you how did you resolve that? Look, at the end of the day, for me, it is that internal voice. Um, your whether it's your conscience or your soul, whatever you call it, uh, that is the only thing that you can really, really depend on. Because all these other voices and all these other, whether it's from institutions or even your significant others you know, it's a product of their own constructions, right? All you can do is either you're going to deal, you're going to lean on your own construction, you as self, or you're just going to borrow from other people. And if you're borrowing from other people, then it's not you. So uh, I think the only voice you can listen to is yours. And that is the voice that speaks to you at night before you go to sleep. That's the voice that you need to pay attention to. Excellent. That's the one that will get you through the darkness. Mm -hmm. And you can live with that now. Now, people, has there been any kind of resolution or there? How's your relationship with your family? Oh, no, great, great. That's really the core for me. That is my platform. Uh, you know, be right with your most intimate members. So I have, you know, I have five children, great wife. Everything revolves around that. If I always, I, I do kind of, you know, make it very militant in one sense. I always, I, tell this to my kids it's like we move as a unit <laughs> i really push it on them like if they it, it'll it'll seem like a small thing that one of the kids will do uh, to the other kids whatever and like something that kids do and i'll know that it's something that kids do but i want to reinforce that point that no 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 we as a family unit we got to stick together we got to move together so uh Family is great. Community, I mean, outside. Some, and obviously, I did get blacklisted for a long time. But uh, it's it's because, you know, I think, you know, the Muslim community feels under siege already, especially after 9-11, war on terror, mm -hmm. hyper-surveillance society. And and my theory is that if, if you're already a beleaguered, besieged minority community and somebody from that community... Uh, let's say, exposes wrongdoing done by that community, the community feels that you're just reinforcing the siege. So you become the bad guy. You're, you're the snitch. Exactly the point that Lauren was making. You're the snitch. You're the, you're yeah. the traitor. Yeah. But in the end, uh, in the end, most people kind of came around and realized that, yeah, these guys were, were up to no good. And yeah, it would have been really bad if something like that were to happen in Canada. And it didn't. And it didn't because of me. Yes. And so... I can live with that. Believe me, I'm very happy to, you know, live and die with that. So mm. all good. Well, thank God. <laughs> we started with family and we've ended with family and that ultimate resolution. Two very different stories, one fictional, but based, as we've heard, on reality. And moving your own extraordinary life story. We've kind of threaded, played in and out of identity and family and loyalty Lauren Wilkinson and Mubin Sheikh, thank you so much for joining us on The Spying Game. Thank you so much. My oh, pleasure. Next time on Spy Scapes The Spying Game, Rory is joined by multi-award winning author, professor of law and practising lawyer Philippe Sands and Captain Dave Butler of the British Military Liaison Mission. 
Burkhard Hartmann was a mountain killer. He was in an SS division that operated in Italy and Yugoslavia, and his job was surviving in high altitude and killing partisans, communists, and Jews. His unit killed many, many such people. Within an hour of making the phone call, the area was flooded with secret police looking for us. Can you imagine what it is like to have a dad who is hanged at Nuremberg for the murder of four million human beings? Living with that burden, it's almost impossible to imagine. We had been tasked to get this piece of technical equipment called an explosive reactive armour box. So we hatched a plan to climb on board a train as it left a training area in the dark, get the box off and then jump off the train and join our vehicle some 10 kilometres up the road. A pretty unholy alliance was created between the British and the Americans, former Nazis, former Italian fascists <laughs> and the Vatican. I mean, I was frankly pretty surprised. The Spying Game is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen to episodes a week early ad-free by subscribing to Spyscape Plus on Apple Podcasts. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.